Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. As always, references to online resources mentioned in the episode will be available on the episode page at jimruttshow.com. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating on your podcasting app. I know it's somewhat annoying to keep hearing me have to say this, but it's a fact of the podcasting ecosystem. Getting good ratings increases our visibility on the apps, which helps us build audience, which lets us continue to get the great guests that we have on the show. So please, when you're done listening today, give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And if you have some friends you think might like the show, I'd really appreciate a referral. Thanks. Today's guest is James Ehrlich. He's the entrepreneur in residence at Stanford University School of Medicine on the Stanford Flourishing Project. He's the founder and CEO of Regen Villages. Welcome, James. Jim, so great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, this is going to be a good conversation. This is the second time James has been on the show. Uh, he was on EP 103 in January 2021, and we had so many cool things to talk about. We didn't get to them all. I think we had to reschedule, and the time was shorter than usual and all that sort of stuff. So we're going to hit some additional hot spots today. We're going to mostly talk about his Regen Villages concept, which you can find a link to on our episode page. Before we're going to do that, we'll do a little bit of bridging so that people who are coming to this fresh uh, have an idea what we're talking about. So one of the uh, interesting quotes as I reviewed the episode last time, you said when you got to Stanford, you started to think about smart houses initially, and then you had an insight. And I quote, a smart house inside a dumb neighborhood doesn't make a lot of sense. What did you mean by that? Where did it lead? Well, uh, you know, the truth is that I spent quite a lot of time doing case study research prior to coming to Stanford on organic, biodynamic, small plot family farms. And most of those, many of them are surrounded by intentional communities, eco-villages, co-housing, collaboratives. When I come to Stanford, I got involved in what's called the Solar Decathlon, was a Department of Energy uh, competition. Uh, Universities would come together, they'd have about 18 months in the design cycle and and about two weeks on site uh, in a designated location to build a smart house, quote unquote, energy positive passive house that's flat pack and got you know, shipped to location and built very quickly. And I was brought in uh, early on as a kind of organic food, permaculture, regenerative infrastructure coach and lecturer to the, to the team, Stanford. And that's when I realized that the, the context of the individual smart house not making a lot of sense if the neighborhood that it's in is using status quo, district scale infrastructure that can and does go on the fritz. And so I really started to explore this idea with some of the professors at Stanford, uh, Professor Larry Leifer, Chris Ford, Henry Jackson, and others on this topic about how can we look at a neighborhood infrastructure that's regenerative and resilient? And fortunately, these were the right professors at the right time who basically said, we love this idea. Uh, why don't you go with it? And that was really the birth of, of Regen Villages. Regen stands for regenerative, uh, which, is, which is how we can build and retrofit housing and communities around critical life support systems of clean water, 
clean renewable energy, waste to resource management, and high yield organic food production uh, right outside your door. So that's the genesis of the Regen Villages initiative. So you basically move the scope from how do I build a smart house to how do I embed it in a full-fledged community that's intelligently designed to live in balance with nature and presumably provide a good quality of living for the folks that live there. Absolutely right. All about flourishing. Everything is about improving the human condition and restoring planetary balance in nature. That would be a good thing. So what is smartness? Uh, We don't want a dumb neighborhood. What makes a smart neighborhood? That's a great question. And every time I get invited to speak on these pretty lofty panels or do lectures uh, around the world on this topic of smart cities uh, and smart communities, the, the word smart is meaningless to me if it's not about safety, if it's not about resiliency, which means that when district scale services have a problem, the power goes out, there's a problem with your water supply, uh, you have a, some kind of situation where the food distribution matrices are, are disrupted, whatever it may be, that these are communities that somehow or another keep humming along. They keep doing what they're doing. I call it kind of Amish tech or indigenous tech, First Nations tech, that these folks are happy, healthy, they have what they need, and that they're not dependent on these district-scale services. So to me, the word smart has to be about safety and resiliency. How do you put that in the context of potential disruption or even collapse of society? Well, you know, look, uh, for many years, I guess people, you know, even esteemed colleagues at Stanford and and elsewhere around the world considered me to be a little bit, um, let's say, chicken little-ish in the sense that I kept saying, hey, these coastal megacities are brittle. And when they break from some kind of anomaly or another, that you're going to see a wave of humanity start to look toward the countryside. And we're not prepared for that wave because for so many decades, we have been neglecting the peri-urban and rural areas because the city has been this sort of preeminent shiny object. So uh, we weren't specifically predicting COVID, but COVID came along a year plus ago, as I think most everybody who's listening is aware of (laughs) at this point around the world. And what it did was overnight, almost immediately, make cities feel less safe. And and not only that, but cities for, for many years now have not been delivering on their promise. They've been expensive. The, they've been uh, not as safe in terms of security. There, there are a lot of issues uh, facing, facing cities and urban areas. And, and so there wasn't even much of a beat, but all of a sudden you start to see people leaving the city, the urban areas, for these peri-urban places and rural areas. And here we are now, Regen Villages is positioned, I would say, perfectly to create a new industrialized approach and I use that term you know, in the best light possible, but to use prefab, assembly line, supply chain building materials and components to rapidly deploy these very beautiful self-sustaining neighborhoods. You're living in a passive house that's generating more power than your family needs. You have clean water systems, energy, delicious food that's permaculture, that's around 
your house and your community and you feel safer. You feel happier. And our goal really is to make these turnkey solution neighborhoods that are socially affordably accessible. You mentioned earlier intentional communities, eco-villages, etc. In our Game B world, we have a concept called proto-bees, which is analogous in some ways to what you're doing, though at a somewhat smaller scale, and we don't have as much bigness in our thinking yet. But one of the things we've discovered is in this space, there's a continuum from basically a real estate project, not much different than a regular residential subdivision at one extreme. The other extreme is a full-on intentional community, kind of like an Israeli kibbutz that might have jobs built in, socialism built in, total egalitarianism, endless governance meetings every Saturday night, et cetera. But we've also discovered there's lots of places in between those two extremes. Uh, Using that kind of uh, dimension, where would you place regen villages? Well, uh, we we shout out, you know, to the Global Eco Village Network, and uh, it was a story I tell, I continue to tell that we had gone, I had gone to Denmark in early 2014 to get the kind of blessing from this gentleman named Ross Jackson, who could be considered the father or grandfather, whatever you want to call it, of the modern eco village movement, and you know, because I really wanted to make sure that that he understood and the community understood the grassroots, organic kind of ground-up community would understand that what we're trying to do is to leapfrog and to create the circumstance where uh, these behemoth industrial players, whether they're real estate developers, landowners, construction firms, material companies, that when you provide a fertile ecosystem for them to, to make a a reasonable impact profit. We can talk about the profitability uh, angle in a minute. But if you can provide that rate of return that's interesting enough for them, then the the syllogism goes that we ought to be able to start changing the rules. (laughs) That the zoning, planning, and permit pulling, which many people who understand developing these kinds of places knows full well, can take decades. Uh, and so what we're really trying to do is use software, our Village OS software, to leverage through virtual digital twin planning, uh, first to change the rules and the planning conditions, but then also that our software can then actually run the physical infrastructure of these neighborhoods. But the answer to your question is we uh, absolutely are, from the very beginning, Regen Villages was focusing on and continues to focus on how can we transact with sovereign wealth, pension fund, and green transition funds that are in the trillions of euros and dollars? How can we transact with them in such a way that they will provide the facilitation of mezzanine, junior, and senior level debt to get these places built at speed? around the world. Because I think we can all agree there's a desperate housing crisis. There is an urgent climate change uh, issue that's critical we have to deal with. And we have to make these communities that can be be decoupled for self-reliance. They can actually become these self-reliant places. And I'm not talking about libertarian 
political uh, mindset, but really about just safety and resiliency. Oh, you didn't actually address the question. You said lots of interesting things. But uh, in terms of how the community, the commitments that a person makes when they join one of these regen villages, is it more like a hippie commune or is it more like a suburban subdivision or is it something in between? And if so, sort of where on that continuum? Traditional real estate development in the sense that it's, it is not necessarily a subdivision and not necessarily cooperative, but a place where you can come to and you can buy a house, you can rent a house, you can be offered a house for social uh, affordability, and that you can live and be in this community in such a way where you have monthly association fees that uh, if you pay the full amount for those things, great, then you have no responsibility or obligations whatsoever to do anything in the community except live your normal life uh, with your friends and family and etc. However, if you decide that you would like to contribute and work in the garden or farm or do childcare or elder care or other kind of activities that are part of a ledger and an actuary that we have related to labor costs, that your monthly association fee can then be reduced or removed, or maybe it pays off your mortgage or your rent. And so it's essentially addressing the eco-village movement, providing it uh, at people's own terms. That's our goal, really. Making it optional, essentially, so people can dial in what they want. Uh, you talk about food being grown on the property. Uh, so something like a CSA would be part of the deal as well that people could optionally take? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, our goal is to, to have a, a budget somewhere between 200 to 500 per month, depending upon the size of your home, how many inhabitants are in your home. But essentially that your energy bill, your water bill, your organic waste bill, and maybe something like 55 or 60% of your daily nutritional needs, your shopping basket, your food basket, would also be sorted with that few hundred dollar or 400 euro a month association fee. So in other words, it's really competitive on what you would normally pay for those other bills to happen. And, and so, yeah, we're really compelled about this idea of permaculture, designing neighborhoods around permaculture. Okay, before we put up the single home or community center, it's really all about food. <laughs> if you want to think about what Regen Villages is, is about, it's imagine just a delicious year-round menu of bioavailable nutrition for you and your family, where when you open your front door or your back door, you see, you see where it's coming from. And so would the food part be mandatory if you're part of the you're paying the association fee, it's subscription to the community-supported agriculture going to be a mandatory part, or is that optional? Well, it's, it's, it's mandatory if you are paying the association fee, uh, you receive the, the baskets. If you, if you don't want your, your twice-a-week food basket with all different kinds of, of delicious veggies and, and eggs and chicken and other kinds of small animal protein and light dairy, et cetera, I guess you can turn it away or donate it back to the community. But I don't see anybody on our list so far who's <laughs> – that's not something that they're interested in. They want – they're interested in bioavailable nutrition. They want to go further than organic. They want the biodynamic farming principles. They really want to understand that, the, that they're eating food that is 
completely pesticide, herbicide, and fungicide free. And that best way to understand that is to know that you're living right next to it. You see what's happening. Yep. It's uh, interesting, but it's also hard, as you guys will find out. Especially, uh, I've seen some of your designs, they call for pretty intensive in-structure and vertical-type farms and stuff like that. And uh, you can get some infestations in there like nobody's business. And sort of committing to entirely organic, uh, we'll see if it's practical or not. I have my doubts. I mean, I actually have a farm and I'm engaged with the local agricultural movements. And particularly as you go to these high-intensity, quasi-industrialized models, the failure modes actually start to go up as opposed to open field agriculture. And we talked last time about the fact that you wanted to be able to support something like a thousand people on, uh, was it a thousand people, something like that, on 60 acres. And to do that takes a tremendous concentrated effort, which kind of increases your fragility. No, there's no, there's no doubt about the fact that, that the biggest variable that we're going to face is in food production, especially in either Nordic cold weather climate context or northern Canada, whatever it may be or in arid locations like Dubai or Saudi Arabia, et cetera, or some other issues in the the tropics and subtropics. Those variabilities are going to be there. But there's a couple of things uh, on our side. One, there's increased understanding with precision ag and and algorithms to get ahead of some of those curves. Um, Number two, there's the natural remedies. And there's so many natural remedies now to, to kind of cure for when those circumstances start to happen. And and so, of course, there's no doubt that you could have a, a crop failure here or a crop failure there or some other issue that you might have infestation, whatever it may be. But that's also the reason for uh, this patchwork of permaculture and these sort of quilts of, of movable uh, farm plots. Because in that mindset and framework, you you really diminish the ability for those bugs to come back in the same place, at least, every year. You confuse the hell out of them. You also bring in natural predators. And, and you know, the, the truth is you're going to have a certain amount of attrition and loss to organic farming because those, those creatures, whether they're worms or, or you know, or, or caterpillars or, or other kinds of uh, aphids, whatever, are going to come to your site. But it also then attracts certain kinds of, of predators. And that's why it's also to, really important to, to make sure that you're inoculating the right kind of mycelial network that is providing the right kind of signaling. And, and so nature can also be on our side, is what I'm trying to say, to help us with these things. Yeah, there's certainly some opportunities there. It's tricky, though. Agriculture is the hardest goddamn thing I've ever uh, tried to do. And I've done uh, lots of other things that people said were impossible, but uh, doing ag on a budget is a big challenge, but I'll I'll love to see how you guys go. The next big question uh, when people start thinking, particularly about rural villages, is work and making a living. You go to the rural countryside, there aren't too many good paying jobs in general. It seems like there's two possible answers. One is to initially, at least, focus on people who can work remotely and make big city incomes while living in the country. Uh, and the second is to develop industries, you know, in the settlements or, or very close by. What's your guys' thought on how you deal with the fact that good-paying jobs in rural places uh, generally aren't too plentiful? If you suddenly had 
few hundred people suddenly showing up, you would most likely saturate uh, whatever good jobs there were. Well, it's it's a you know great point and well taken. But you know, when I started this research on Regen Villages, almost uh, I guess eight plus years ago at Stanford, almost nine years now, the there was an Oxford study that had come out recently thereafter, which predicted that by 20 years later, uh, which we're, I think we're close now to 15 years or 18 years, whatever, uh, in, is that you're going to see 47% of all employment not exist anymore. This is pre-COVID, having to do with machine learning, artificial intelligence, and, and robotic assistance. So now even if you dispute that by, by 50%, it's still a, a huge swath of, of humanity will no longer have employment. Some people might argue, no, there's going to be these new jobs created. But it's very different than the turn of the Industrial Revolution, where those jobs meant, the change meant more assembly line and manufacturing work. Instead, now you're going to see more and more people who are unemployed and underemployed. And now because of COVID, especially, a few things have happened, obviously, around the world. Number one, people realize they can work at distance. They can work from home. They can work remotely. The other is that because of COVID, there's been an incredible downturn in global employment because of the fact that people have kind of woken up a bit to this idea of the extraction consumption economy, the the quarterly returns, if you will, that are akin, if you will, to to a cancer cell. People have begun to, to wake up to that point. So our goal really is that people can work uh, at those higher paying jobs from remote locations in rural areas. They can also create new kinds of businesses and startups in those areas that draw more people to those places, also employing people who are local to those rural areas. But most importantly, that we start to move toward to a period of self-worth instead of a job, right? And if you wake up in the morning and you're happy with what you're doing and, you're, and you feel hopeful and you're doing something that's contributing and you, and you just feel like you're part of something and you're doing things that are creative, that's 90% of what people need in their lives. Of course, the other part is making sure that they have a roof over their heads, they're getting three square plus meals a day, they're feeding their families, they've got their energy bill, They've got all of those other things contained in their lifestyle. So if we can solve for the base Maslow hierarchical needs just by living in a neighborhood, then the delta of, let's say, universal basic income potentially is reduced. And then we can start to see these new economic models start to emerge. And that's happening right now. I mean, as as I'm speaking we're seeing a whole new era of people who have left the city for good. They're living in the countryside. They're, they're starting businesses or working to create new, new businesses and new ideas. And, and so this is a, an optimistic future, post-COVID future. Ah, it's uh, interesting and difficult, though, because it's a bit of a you know, it seems like a reliance on things that aren't going to happen anytime soon, like a movement towards truly significant levels of universal basic income. Yes, there's some small scale experiments here and there, 
but uh, I don't see any in the say in the next ten years any significant likelihood that any of the major industrial countries are going to enact a UBI at say the equivalent of ten thousand U.S. per adult per year, which is kind of the minimum that uh, you might even think about starting to be able to free people from the tyranny of work. So we're going to have to solve this problem with, I think, work in place. And I think that's one of the hardest problems, one of the two hardest problems about thinking about these kinds of things. Well, I mean, look, there's been very successful experiments, uh, even here most recently in California. I think it was out in in, uh, Stockton or Modesto. They had an incredibly successful UBI, Universal Basic Income, experiment over the last couple of years. And people were learning new skills and getting different kinds of employment and and becoming able to untether themselves from the UBI after the experiment. In other words, it really improved their lives. It made them less prone to to stay in this, in a sort of cycle of poverty. And that's really what we're on about with with this idea of UBI. And again, if you have a housing infrastructure that is where most people spend the money that they earn. If you think about it, people get in a car and they go to work in a box to pay for the empty box that they leave behind for eight hours a day. And one third or more typically of their paycheck is going to that. Then another big percentage is going to food and power and utilities, other utilities, but also phone. And so if you can combine all those and make them more cost-effective, then that delta for UBI can be less from a government perspective. And also, we can find new economic incentives for these rural areas. I'm so bullish about the rural and the peri-urban areas because they represent this incredible opportunity to get the new build or the retrofit build right for for the benefit of, of people and planet. Yeah, and one of the things you did point out last time around is, uh, particularly in rural areas, land is dirt cheap, right? Where I live, you can buy perfectly reasonable land for three or $4,000 an acre. Compare that to in the city where it's in the tens of millions an acre. But now we go on to our next problem, which we talked a little bit about last time. I think we should dig into a little bit more this time, which is the clusterfuck known as regulation. Even in very rural, I live in the most rural county east of the Mississippi River, population 2,200. Nonetheless, to try to build an urban village at moderate scale is a multi-year machete journey through vines and brush and thorns, uh, as you pointed out previously, uh, many of them written 80 or 100 years ago for completely different purposes, but nonetheless... It's an amazing thicket one has to cut through to do what seems like good for the world. What does Regen Villages, if you can solve this problem, this will be the catalyst, the activation energy above all others that will help this movement move forward? Absolutely. Uh, one of the number one things that we're focusing on with our Village OS software is to change the bloody rules. In other words, if you're looking at a piece of agricultural land or ranch land or, or even greenbelt areas, the handcuffs around those landowners and those developers uh, and those communities has been unlockable. But if you can come with a, an ability, with a virtual simulator, a simulation, you look at that piece of land, you imagine what it would be to put three, four, five hundred plus homes 
on one third or less of the actual land a grant with two thirds or more of that land grant being devoted to permaculture and productive uh, food, water, energy, waste systems, then all of a sudden you create a new rule book overlay, a digital overlay that, as Bucky Fuller was off to say, makes the old rules obsolete. So that's really what we're on about with our Village OS software, that we can show the governments, regional especially, and the national governments, that, that there's a new way forward to meet these ESG and sustainable development goal and green transition funding commitments if you check off all of these boxes. And that's really exciting. And that's what has to happen because I'll give you a perfect example. We are, we're a Dutch holding company, and, but we have a subsidiary in Sweden, here in the US and Canada, most recently in, in Chile. But the, in Sweden, for instance, and which is very common all around Europe and, and the rest of the world, they need to build over a million new homes in the next eight years. But the rule books are the same, which means it can take uh, five or 10 or more years just to realize a community of a few hundred homes. So there's just no way that they're ever going to be able to get to where they need to get to in terms of their housing crisis by the current rule book. But they need also to have an impact. They can't continue to create car culture, energy-sucking, waste-producing neighborhoods, which is kind of what they did in the, in to some degree in the 1970s, um, the social housing boom that they did. The rule book calls for it, right? The rule book, at least in the, most of the United States, calls for recreating car culture, or if you're in rural areas, they often have three or 10 acre minimum lot sizes, which ends up with people scattered all over hell and back where the infrastructure is, uh, there's no cap no way to really build efficient infrastructure. That, and, and But let's look at that for a second. The, those rules, I like to say, were put on the books 150, 200 years ago by old white guys with long white beards and top hats, okay? They were the robber barons of their era of district scale utilities and of mobility and of all the industries that surround and support the same rinse and repeat model. And, and so now we have this opportunity to, to use software, to use machine learning, to show a new way forward, a new rule book, but also that we can actually piggyback and marry ourselves to these large industrial players that are, that are building these beautiful new housing capacity components and also the other pieces that go with it and show that there is a pipeline and a, an ecosystem here that supports big business and industry. And then, of course, the banks get interested. Uh, they're more inclined to lend because they know what those, the current state of the art is for passive homes, for instance. We get to a place where we have essentially a toolkit and a rule book for changing what has to be changed right now. And that's really, I think, again, an optimistic future for us to be able to change the rules. It's the, probably one of the top things we have to deal with for us to survive on this planet. I think from our experience with the proto B movement, it's the number one. 
getting this regulatory environment changed. Because once we have a decent regulatory environment, then experimentation will figure out the right way to do it. If you were going to take your Regen Village project to a county, and in the United States, most land use planning is at the county or even the town level, what story do you tell them? And what do you use to back up your story to get them to allow the kind of land use that would be necessary to do the kind of things that you need to do? I think, again, going back to our our roots, literally focusing on big finance, that one of the biggest questions politicians and bureaucrats, but mostly politicians, want to know or need to know is that they're not going to be wrong. The easiest answer you're always going to get is no, because they understand no, and, and they can always refer to their rule books as to why that no is happening. But if you can say, and you can show them, here is a huge funding source that's willing to come in and bankroll 80, 100 plus million to build this full four or 500 home community in a turnkey manner. And we have also these tens of thousands of people registered to buy or rent those homes. And we have these giant bulletproof pension funds willing to purchase any surplus housing for long-term secure rental. You've essentially created a golden key for that county and for that district to say, gosh, why wouldn't we say yes to this? Because uh, otherwise we're going to go down the road to the next municipality and do it there and and show them how it's done. And and P.S., this is how Walmart works, in case you're wondering. Walmart comes to town, and I'm not saying Walmart are great actors by any shake of the stick, but they come to town with a lot of money and they, they really woo and convince the, the planners that they need to build this box store on the outskirts of their town on the promise, not delivery, but the promise of all these things that actually don't ever get delivered. But in any case, that allows these things to happen. That's why you see those box stores popping up. That's why you see those big uh, industrial players popping up and doing the things that they do, because the money is what drives the industry and it's what drives the lending and it's what drives the political decision making. That's our thought process. Yeah, and it's not bad. I mean, in fact, you could take it one level further and be really quite aggressive about it. Walmart is also famous for playing jurisdictions off against each other, saying, particularly, you know, not so much for the stores, but for the distribution warehouses. And we have several in our region over in the Shenandoah Valley, and they have notoriously played the jurisdictions off against each other to get things like county investment for road infrastructure, humongous 20 year tax abatements on property tax, and other things. You know, I'm not sure that, as you said, I'm not sure Walmart's a good uh, uh, moral model for how to proceed, but I suppose one could get pretty aggressive in playing one jurisdiction off against the other once you have your story straight. It's, it's really more about enticing instead of, instead of playing them off each other for competition. It's really more about this idea that, that when you have giant finance behind you, half a billion, a billion, whatever it is, and you've got the industrial players with blue chip names, Siemens, Bosch, Schneider Electric, Philips. If people take notice. And then also this blended finance, but also the fact that, that we have the sort of the, the, the triple P, the public-private partnership, which is, includes universities. You know, my affiliation is Stanford, Singularity University. We have now just entered a collaboration with MIT Solve 
Um, we have these relationships with with wonderful universities like Wageningen in, in the Netherlands and and TU Delft and um, and Groningen and, and etc. In Sweden, KTH and Lund. The the list is all over the world with these university collaborations we have because if you bring all of those forces to the table, again you're reducing the risk profile for the government to uh, allow the the word yes to flow more freely. And that's really what we're, what we're talking about here. You've mentioned several times getting these gigantic financial enterprises behind what you're doing. To do that, they have to have at least a tolerable rate of return. And also, from my experience, I've been on the board of a $17 billion trust that I had to provide some guidance to. They need to have a understandable model, right? They're not innovators. The big boys aren't. So let's dig as deep here as we can go. What do you have in mind for this, the structures, the, the deals, essentially? Typically, these things are structured with multiple kinds of financial products, as you know. Give me a sketch of what it might uh, look like, put the funding together for one of these projects, or even better, a pool of money that could fund uh, multiple projects at scale. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually pretty straightforward. So the first is that we engage the landowner or municipality that owns the land, and they have entitlement, and they're willing to put that land up in the form of equity into a deal, right? So that's immediately a huge risk profile reducer for these institutional investors. Number two, that this land happens to be in a viable or fairly viable location within a reasonable commute distance to, to either university or university town or, or uh, a city. So 30, 45 hour, it could be a little bit more like an hour, uh, 90 minutes to start with, that the demographics and the area can, can deliver at least a 12 to 15% IRR, or iterated rate of return, that the especially that the government is willing and able to roll up their sleeves to allow the um, planning conditions to happen within 15, 18 months so that the deposits can start to be taken, investors start to see the revenue coming in, and that the project it can be completed within a, a 24 to 36 month time frame, meaning you fully built four or 500 homes within three years, right? And you sold out or rented out, and the investors get their reasonable impact rate of return, and you've got this now beautiful, vibrant community that's been born. Those are essentially the guidelines. Now, uh, a few questions here. You know, one, I understand, and this makes a lot of sense, to the degree you have big partners and a proven model, you lower the execution risk. Every town is afraid of you know, putting some infrastructure in and then finding, all right, it's a blank field. The builder went bust, right? And so it happens all the time. Uh, real estate development is mostly full of small-scale characters, often undercapitalized, et cetera. So this idea of bringing in the big players uh, reduces their legitimate and, frankly, experiential fear of being stuck with a white elephant that never gets beyond putting in some crappy gravel roads or something. But you, then you mentioned the 11 to 15% IRR 
presumably that's only for the very core of the equity investor, right? You know, that's a ridiculously high IRR for the uh, for the mezzanine and debt finance that would go into one of these projects. So could you talk a little bit about the layer cake of finance as you see it? You know, one of my views is that uh, we want to keep that equity layer as small as possible. And to the degree that you have a reproducible and demonstrable business plan for doing it, uh, you can do so. In the early days, you'll have to have bigger equity layers and mezzanine and but the debt will be a smaller piece. But over time, one could try to make that layer cake as inverted as possible, essentially. So maybe you could talk about how the various kinds of finance play together. Right. I mean, it, again, it's it's a combination, you know, this is sort of this idea of blended finance. So, you know, traditional real estate development, as you're probably aware, is is very greedy. It's very predatory. It's 25% plus rate of return with a two-year fixed exit opportunity cost. So you've got to get in, get out. Typically, they build as much square footage, square meters as they possibly can, really bad materials, really junky. They sell as high as they possibly can, and then they get out. We are an impact investment vehicle that is focusing on sustainable development goal, ESG, and green transition funding commitments. So therefore, we're already telling our investors the maximum you're going to see for, for the real estate side and sale and rental is going to be 12 to 15% uh, IRR over a three to five year period terminal value, number one. Number two, we try to find, of course, and we know it's out there, very patient debt finance. So the mezzanine, junior and senior, senior level debt can be hopefully in a 2 to 3% or 1% to 2% or even less. Uh, range. And then when you start to look at, at, for instance, the pension funds, they're very happy and ecstatic even with a 2% annualized return from rent roll and buying housing inventory for, you know, for affordable uh, rent. And so there's a lot of different ways to skin this blended finance cat, as it were. And, and our goal really is to do that dance and to position ourselves to create the right kind of green bonds and infrastructure, finance infrastructure, that puts big amount of money next to us, behind us, so that the players in the field say, gosh, we'd really like to engage with this Regen Villages platform because we understand that then at least it's a stepping stone to, to this facilitation toward that funding. And, and that's how we really feel like this is all going to get done rapidly around the world. It'll work rapidly once you've proven it. That would be my perspective. And that these people are extremely, especially the mezzanine and debt finance people, uh, you'll be able to find people for equity for 11 15%. That's a nice return in the current world. Very few real estate investments uh, do the 25% you're talking about. You look at most real estate investment trusts, 5 or 6% is a good return, right? Only the most uh, audacious rape, pillage, and plunder developers make those kinds of returns, and those are not typically the kind that uh, institutional investors engage in. So there's kind of a chicken in the egg. You got you to prove it, and then this thing will evolve towards uh, the, these kinds of structures. To give people a sense, I just did some back-of-the-envelope calculation. A 300-home uh, project, we're probably talking total uh, financings on the order of $100 million. That sound about right? Yep. Pretty much depends on where you are, of course, in terms of 
per square foot or per square meter uh, build cost and and labor, and also, but if you it also depends a lot on the land cost. So if you can get the land at like you talked about this dirt cheap cost or free because the rural peri-urban areas they're desperate to have more you know new blood to live there, then you know you wherever we can find uh, effective opportunities to reduce our costs, we can pass that savings on to homeowners, and we can also create a better case, business case for our investors. Yeah, just running the numbers, you know, over in the Shannon, over here at 3,000 an acre, 200 acres is almost nothing compared to 100 million. Over in the Shenandoah Valley, where there's plenty of jobs, the land is better and the climate's a little bit more amenable. The best land's about 10,000 an acre. So that's still only 2% of the whole project. So uh, on the scale of things in rural and uh, quasi-rural areas, the other parts are the biggest part, you know, the the infrastructure, something like at least $200 a square foot to make uh, energy efficient construction these days. And unfortunately, a goodly part of that also has to do with unnecessary regulation, but you may not be able to beat that anytime soon. And then, of course, the uh, electric and the roads and the sewer and the water and all that stuff also will, will add to the cost. Uh, so, yeah, I think the general direction you're taking here sort of makes sense, but it's going to be an interesting chicken and the egg question on how many of these do you have to do before the big boys are willing to come in at reasonable rates of return. I'll be very interested in looking at that as, as this project moves forward. The next topic, uh, we mentioned it just in passing last time. I'd like to dig into this a little bit, something I've done some work on, which is uh, you have talked about making these sites uh, self-sufficient with respect to electricity. Is that really practical today? I mean, the amount of batteries you need in most parts of the country to, you know, have a sufficient depth to uh, be literally off the grid increases the the cost of building the electrical infrastructure by a factor of four or five or at least three. And in some parts of the country, like the Northeast, it could be even more than that. So talk a little bit about this ambition to be off-grid, self-contained solar. Well, it's more than just solar, okay? So it depends upon where you are, again, geographically and climate zone-wise on planet Earth. But it's a, it's a mixed bag. You have uh, photovoltaic, solar, solar thermal. Uh, you have wind, and the, the turbines, the wind turbines are, are getting more efficient and without bird death and without uh, noise. And, and you also have biomass and biogas, and um, and geothermal and and geothermal doesn't have to be this this expensive, you know, kind of big dig, low bore kind of thing. You can do the the short bore kind of uh, maybe something like twenty five maximum meters down kind of thing, and and you get to a temperature constant in the Earth's uh, you know um, soil that is roughly around 55 degrees. So that's a very pleasant uh, delta temperature that you bring that through a low energy water pump or low energy air pump up into your homes, up into your buildings, your your greenhouses, et cetera. And then the ability to either heat or cool from that point becomes much less. Now, of course, you're building with passive house platform typologies. These are This is a state of the art right now where those homes are extremely toasty naturally in the winter and, and nice and cool in the summer. 
And so again, your, your, your energy demands are much, much lower. But what we're looking to do really is, is a, a basket of energy generation and, and to balance that using what's called a microgrid. The microgrid load balances different kinds of power sources generating at different times of the day or night, whatever it may be, storing it in clean, efficient ways. Yes, there are battery storage, but there's also other ways to store energy, um, either with water or with compressed air, uh, and then you're able to generate that power back from those sources. But then we also look at having a grid tie. We're not you know, uh, shying away from a grid tie so that we can, where there are good tariff agreements especially, sell that power back. The microgrid will is smart enough to know when in the day is the best time to sell that power back to the grid for the highest possible price. So there's a benefit that comes back to the community for that. But even if there isn't a tariff agreement, um, we can use that surplus power in our village for essentially a petrol equivalent for vehicles, for, for farm equipment, for other kinds of things around, around the community that that electricity can, can be used for. So um, it's really, uh, I'm, I'm really uh, enamored by the Amish. I find the Amish to be this population of folks who are, are really strong and really capable. Um, they're not fully decentralized, uh, in the sense that they're living within communities and they they you know part of the larger towns and things like this, but when the power goes out in Pennsylvania for the Amish, it's Tuesday. I mean, in other words, they don't know the difference, and I really love that, and that's really what we're on about with Regen Villages, that we can be islanded for a number of days and not have any issues, that your food basket will not have issues, that your clean water and your plumbing and everything else, everything is just going to function the way it's supposed to. And that's a really high value. So I'm glad you're thinking a little about it, about it with some flexibility because grid tie does change the cost basis tremendously, though it does reduce your robustness to disruption. It requires some, you know, some subtle kind of electrical engineering. Electrical storage is something I know a lot about. And while you mentioned wind and water, I mean, air pressure and water, it turns out they're not actually cost effective except in the rarest of cases. We have the world's largest water storage uh, plant here in Virginia, and there have been no new ones built in the 30 years since that one was built because it's a goddamn hard to find a, a decent location where, where they actually make sense. So unfortunately, for most, especially you know, 300-person neighborhood, batteries is going to be your choice. And it makes sense to have some batteries, but how much is a, essentially an, in, uh, an interesting kind of engineering slash economics question that, that we'll have to work through. Now, here's something that I think uh, would be really interesting to talk about. We didn't talk about this at all last time, but I was doing some research on uh, some of the things that you've talked about with, around Regen Villages, I ran across you talking about your view that it was TV that essentially made suburbs and cities sexy, and that uh, when TV started to penetrate America, that was kind of the end of people being happy living in small-town America. Is that something you've said? I think it is. And if so, how do we make moving back to the country and living in a Regen Village sexy and trendy? 
Well, you know, in 2016, we we came out with uh, we made, we announced ourselves to the world uh, initially at the Venice Biennale for architecture in um, in Italy, and overnight we just all of a sudden you know we hit a nerve and there was all this press coverage, Fast Company, Forbes, and Wall Street Journal, and you know BBC, etc. And and so obviously there's a there's a demand, there's an interest in uh, in this concept of living within nature, not separate from it, right? And and that's a trend that's been growing for for some number of of years now. And now because of COVID, uh, literally our email is is like our servers on fire. <laughs> There's so many people emailing us every day from all around the world. The finance, especially the bankers, especially, have now really begun to lean in. Because they understand that they have to start complying and and creating investment vehicles that answer these questions. So the sex appeal is there. We we know that wherever we announce Regen Villages community that's going to come, whether it's UK or Sweden or Denmark or Netherlands or here in the US or Canada, Chile, whatever, wherever we announce, we know for a fact that we're going to sell out <laughs> because the urgent need for people to want to feel safe for themselves, for their children, for their elders, for their community, you know, is, is paramount. And that is the, that is absolutely what we're, what we're focusing on is this idea of turnkey communities where you can live in the countryside but you don't have to be a farmer, you don't have to be an engineer, you don't have to worry about uh, all of those details. You come into a beautifully architected, pre-built neighborhood, buy a house, rent a house, pay your monthly association fee, and of course, if you want to be involved, you can, and if you do so, there's an electronic digital ledger that will reduce your monthly fees, but otherwise, you can live in that community like any other uh, neighborhood. And moreover, that this idea is about building new economies, that there's these DIY, maker movement, curriculum, healthcare, all these different pieces are like an app store <laughs> that fit into this regenerative neighborhood infrastructure. You mentioned safety several times, and so I'm going to push back with a controversial, no doubt, idea. Should these regen villages have their own militias? Uh, because if we actually are going to have civil collapse at some point, or there's a risk thereof, those people who can't defend themselves are going to be uh, basically taken over and subjugated by those who can. So does it make sense for the Regen Village to have a militia? I have a better idea. Let's build enough Regen Villages around the world that there's an overproduction of these artisanal ingredients and of clean water, and of clean energy, and of waste resource management, and, and, and a place, and enough of these lily pads uh, around the countryside, and the peri-urban, and the suburban retrofits, and even in the urban areas that we can do these breakaway retrofits, that we don't have zombie apocalypse. I don't want to live in a bad Charlton Heston movie from the 1970s. I grew up watching those movies. They weren't bad, by the way. They were fun to watch. But you know, I don't want to. I don't never wanted to live in that scenario. I wanted to be able to affect a positive 
lens that we could imagine a better life through. Now, is there a need for security in that way? Uh, local neighborhood watch, absolutely. Do we have a need? I think personally, we have you know initially probably a need to deal with just the sheer number of tourists from around the world who want to come to see Regen Village's communities up and running. You have no idea the number of municipalities who are dealing with, because they've heard an inkling that we might be coming, might be coming to their area. Municipalities are overrun. How, where is it? How do I find it? I, I want to look at the land. you know. And so we have to be able to control for the looky-loos and, and create you know, woofer, uh, visitor kind of, of, of agreements. And woofers are those people who come and, and volunteer on your farm and they get to stay free for a week or a month or whatever it is uh, in exchange for some labor. They get fed and they have a good time. Our goal is to make these communities not gated, but university campus-like. So there's ebb and flow of ideas, of wisdom, and joy and celebration. And again, when you're overproducing healthy artisanal ingredients, you know what happens? Generosity, compassion, altruism. And by the way, it's clinically proven at Stanford University, the Center for Compassion, Altruism, Research and Education under Dr. James Doty, it's proven to reduce amygdala response, which is your reactive brain, which is cortisol levels. You reduce cortisol levels, which means you live longer, you're happier and healthier. Guess what? You can actually design neighborhoods that make people live happier, longer, healthier lives. Yeah, indeed. I 100% agree. And, you know, we talked about this a little briefly in the previous episode. When I go back to the big city now, and I do from time to time, when I'm in New York, I'm a New Yorker, I take the subway. It always strikes me as so fucking weird that these people are in the subway looking at their shoes, or these days they look at their phones, they don't look you in the eye, they don't engage. Friends of mine that live in New York have been living in you know high rises. They literally don't know who their next door neighbor is, even though they've been living there for 15 years. That strikes me as a very strange way to live. And it's amazing people have put up with it for as long as they have. Well, I grew up in New York City and and uh, you know, I get it. Okay, it's twenty-four by seven. If you want a particular kind of regional, you know, Indian food delivered at 3.30 in the morning, you can get it if you've got the money to order it and get it. At the same time, I was always amazed as a kid, how does any of this actually work? <laughs> I mean, the subways, the infrastructure was rotten and brittle, and the cables and the wires are everywhere. It's not just New York. I mean, it's Mumbai, it's London. I mean, all the big cities in the world pretty much have this, this substrate of just cobbled together things that miraculously work. But when there's an anomaly, it comes and it can be really catastrophic for a lot of people simultaneously. And that's what I saw when my family experienced Hurricane Sandy. They were without power and the facilities, even you know, the shelves in the market were bare for five, six weeks. And it started to get really real and terrifying. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I really see that there's a way forward 
for humanity. I'm not anti-city, by the way, so just I want to get that out there. I'm definitely interested in solving for my friends and family who live in Manhattan and other places with these breakaway overlay components for regenerative resiliency. But we have to solve the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the outside city concepts. But where are you actually with the Regen project? You know, you have software to be developed, databases of regulation, investors to be lined up. Where is Regen Villages as a entity today? Well, we are a very strange multinational startup. Uh, we're holding company in the Netherlands, Swedish subsidiary, U.S. subsidiary, office in U.K. and London a subsidiary in Canada and British Columbia, and most recently in Chile. We have currently, we're in a Series A funding round for 16.5 million euro, which is all we need pretty much to to, uh, facilitate the building of our first 400 home community. We have land opportunities uh, on deck right now, about 25 different locations in our pipeline. Four or five of them are pretty high likelihood areas. I won't give out the shout out yet to what those are, but some, you know, Europe, UK, US, Canada, um, and Chile. And we've recently become part of the UN Climate Change Secretariat Resilience Lab. That was late uh, 2020. Um, We're part of the European Network for Rural Development, the ENRD, which which is really great. Also, most recently became part of the EU Bauhaus. Uh, movement. And uh, we are engaged right now in due diligence with one of the smallest funds that our, our banking advisors have brought to us, which is a 14 billion US dollar fund that's also connected to, to Europe and Canada. So we're, we're in a position right now to, we think, effectively close our Series A round, move forward pretty rapidly uh, in the next 12 to 15 months to, to break ground and, uh, and then start moving people in in the next couple years, hopefully, to our first pilot communities. So we plan to do concurrent developments. Cool. That's very, very exciting. You've come a long way just in a fairly short period of time. When would you expect to, cl- I mean, you know, money talks and bullshit walks, as we say around here. Uh, when do you expect to close on your Series A? Well, uh, all the indicators seem to think, seem to say uh, sometime next month, which, is, which would be really exciting. It could be the month after in May, but we're, we're good right now uh, with finance, so we're, we're, we're excited about what's coming. The other thing is that we're making fantastic progress with our village operating system software and working with our partners, um, Sir Robert McAlpine in the U.K., uh, the oldest, largest engineering general contracting firm in the UK, and and also uh, Bureau Hapold and Squint Opera. Uh, these are two fantastic uh, bulletproof partners, and we're we're really engaged right now in in bringing our Village OS software to to life, both the operational version of the software to run the first neighborhoods, and then the design side of the software. As I said before, to change the rules. So. We know we're going to do it. We know we're going to bring it forward. And we know that it will be successful because it has to happen. It has to happen around the world at scale. 
Very cool. This is uh, so exciting that you're getting this close. Uh, I will be so interested. I'd love to have you back once things are up and running. We can talk about the first project. And I also would love to know, you know, what class of folks are willing to be A-round investors in something like this. Don't need to name names, but, you know, this is going to be, this could be world-changing. James, thanks for coming on the show and telling us more about this very exciting Regen Villages project. Thanks again, Jim. I really appreciate it. Great to see you again. Production services and audio editing by Jared Janes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.